All right, good morning. Glad you're here with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to James chapter 3. If you're new with us this morning, welcome. Glad you're here. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, you're most welcome. You should know, though, if you are new, that we are in the middle of a series on the book of James. Here at Free Money Free, we like to take the books of the Bible, preach to them verse by verse, so that the Word of God sets the agenda. And this morning, that means we are in James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. And you'll be happy to know this morning, in light of our bathroom situation, that I've scrubbed all illustrations related to Niagara Falls or fire hydrants. Uh, I will try to refrain from any water illustration today. All right, let's pray and let's get to it. Uh, Father, we thank you for how your kindness to us. We recognize that there's always just going to be crazy things that happen in life, including today having no water at the church. And yet, in the midst of that, we recognize that you are sovereign over even sewer lines. We recognize also that around the world today, there are people who are gathering together to worship under much more difficult circumstances, some even worshiping at potential expense of their life. And so we recognize this is a small hardship this morning, but we do pray that you would sustain us and that you would give us the energy to get through this and that you would keep us focused even in the midst of any distractions that may be going on, even at the, whether it be at the church or in our own personal lives. And so we just ask that you would be gracious this morning. Please minister to us through your word. Speak to us loudly and clearly through James chapter 3. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I'm not sure why or when, but somewhere along the line, it seems that someone decided that if there was one creature that perhaps best personifies the quality of wisdom, perhaps it is the owl. Going all the way back to ancient Greek mythology, the owl has consistently been portrayed as a source of great knowledge and insight. If Winnie the Pooh and his gang of friends needed advice, who did they go to? The owl, of course. If Harry Potter needed someone he could trust to deliver the mail, who did he go to? Again, the owl. And perhaps most importantly, if you really wanted to know how many licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll pop, whose advice would you turn to? According to a 1970s TV commercial, the answer is again, the owl. The owl is the one that can tell you that it takes one, two, three licks to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll pop. All that to say, for whatever reason, the owl over time has become a symbol of wisdom and knowledge. If someone is looking to portray wisdom in the form of a creature or animal, the owl is often the first place that they go. I think that fact tells us something about the way we view owls, but I would also argue that it tells us something about the way that we view wisdom. Consider, for example, the character Owl from Winnie the Pooh. In the Winnie the Pooh books, Owl is seen as the mentor of the bunch. He's a bit pretentious and at times can be a bit cranky, and he probably doesn't know as much as he thinks he does. He often gives bad advice. But he does seem to know more than the others, and that knowledge makes him the go-to source for information and advice. Thus, he's wise in the sense that he knows quite a bit of information and can pass that information on to others. That same type of wisdom is in view in the famous 19th century nursery rhyme entitled A Wise Old Owl. It goes like this, A wise old owl lived in an oak. The more he saw, the less he spoke. The less he spoke, the more he heard. Why can't we all be wise like that old bird? Implied in that nursery rhyme is the idea that wisdom is about collecting information. The owl in the rhyme is wise because he has the wherewithal to close his mouth and listen, and in doing so, he gathers knowledge. So in the case of both the nursery rhyme and Winnie the Pooh, the owls seem to be a source of wisdom because the owl has information. And presumably, that information can then be passed along to someone else in the form of wisdom. But here's my question for you this morning. Is that really wisdom? Is wisdom simply having information and knowledge that we can then pass along to others? Or is there something more to wisdom than just knowing facts and collecting shareable data? Well, in the Bible, the answer to that question is pretty clear. In both the Old and New Testament, wisdom is not simply about collecting facts and knowledge. Rather, wisdom is seen as the ability to put facts and knowledge into action. In the Bible, wisdom is less about what we know 
and more about how we think and what we do in light of what we know. According to the Bible, you can be incredibly intelligent and perceptive and yet completely unwise. This is actually a reality I think James is reminding us of in our passage today. In James 3, verses 13 to 18, James, James contrasts true wisdom that's from above with what I'll call worldly wisdom that is not from above. And in doing so, he reminds us that true wisdom is not about knowing facts or gathering information that you can then pass along to others. Rather, true wisdom is seen in the way that we live. It's seen in the way that we treat others, and it's seen in the way that we think about ourselves in relation to God. In other words, the world's picture of wisdom as seen in characters like Al and Winnie the Pooh is not the same as the biblical portrait of wisdom. It's important for us to be able to make that distinction and see that distinction because true wisdom, biblical wisdom, is incredibly valuable. And it's much needed in the world today, and I would argue it's much needed in the church today. So I said, let's dive into James 3, verses 13 to 18 in the world of wisdom. If you would, please stand. I have reverence for the reading of God's word. So James 3, verses 13 to 18, the words will be on the screen. You can follow along in your own Bibles or you can listen as I read. But James 3, starting in verse 13, says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So throughout James 3, 13, 18, the passage we just read, James is contrasting biblical wisdom, wisdom from above, with worldly wisdom, wisdom that is not from above. In verse 13, and then again in verses 17 and 18, James describes true wisdom and its qualities and effects. But sandwiched in between those two descriptions of true wisdom and biblical wisdom is James' description in verses 14 to 16 of a wisdom that is not from above, a worldly wisdom that is characterized in much different ways than true wisdom. And so what I want to do this morning, in light of what James does here in James 3, 13 to 18, is simply contrast true biblical wisdom that's from above with worldly wisdom that is not from above. More specifically, I want to give you three points of contrast this morning between true wisdom and worldly wisdom. And in doing so, my hope is that you'll leave here this morning with a greater desire to pursue true and biblical wisdom, and at the same time that you'll have a greater desire to flee from worldly wisdom. So with that goal in mind, then let's turn our attention to these three points of contrast, starting with point of contrast number one. First point of contrast being this. Worldly wisdom is characterized by jealousy and selfish ambition. But true wisdom is characterized by good conduct and humble meekness. Let me say that again. Worldly wisdom is characterized by jealousy and selfish ambition, but true wisdom is characterized by good conduct and humble meekness. We see this in verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not, be, excuse me, do not boast and be false to the truth. So you may remember that wisdom was already a, a topic of discussion back in chapter 1 when James encouraged us that if we lack wisdom, we should ask God who gives generously. Now here in chapter 3, he's clarifying a little bit what type of wisdom are we even asking for. Here in chapter 3, James returns to the topic of wisdom, and this time he asks a question, who is it that's wise and understanding among you? Now in asking that question, James is not necessarily expecting a show of hands. He's not saying, okay, who is wise? Raise your hand. Rather, he's using a rhetorical device here to make a point. 
And the point he's making is this, that if someone claims to be wise and understanding, they should demonstrate their wisdom with good deeds and humble meekness. And in saying that, again, it's pretty clear here, James' definition of wisdom is not the same as the definition that the world often uses. Again, as evidenced by Winnie the Pooh or any one of a number of other references, we tend to think that wisdom is about gathering knowledge and then passing along that information. Now, I don't think James would deny that there's some value in having information and passing it along. But clearly, James has an understanding of wisdom that's from above that's characterized much differently. It's characterized in the way that we live and in the way that we carry ourselves. More specifically, as James teaches here in verse 13, true wisdom, biblical wisdom, is characterized by good conduct and humble meekness. So listen, if you can recite the quadratic formula from memory and pass it on to someone else, or if you can recall the details of a certain battle in World War War II and then regurgitate that information and give it to someone else, or if you can parse Greek verbs, which is what the New Testament's originally written, and thus better translate this passage, those are all great and helpful things. But listen, they're not necessarily marks of wisdom. A wise person doesn't just know things, they do things. More specifically, they do good things because they love God. And that is much different than just having information. Several years ago now, there was a guy that I met with for counseling. In our first meeting, it was pretty clear that this guy had a ton of Bible knowledge, and he had a really good grasp of the scriptures overall, at least he seemed to. But in that same meeting, he also confessed that he was cheating on his wife and addicted to pornography, and he didn't seem particularly interested in changing his ways. So let's be clear here. No matter how much biblical information this guy had, and he seemed to have a lot, the man was a fool. He was not wise at all, because you cannot claim to be wise and then live in a way that completely contradicts what the Bible teaches. Wisdom, James would say, is evidenced by good conduct. It's putting the Bible into action. But James also indicates in this passage, it's not just doing the right thing, it's doing the right thing with the right mindset. Again, listen to the end of verse 13. He says this, By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Now, meekness, or humility, was a virtue that was often despised in the ancient world. It was seen as a sign of weakness. And yet it was a virtue that was extolled by Jesus and commended here by James as evidence of true wisdom. So what is meekness then? A meek person, I think, from the standpoint of the Bible, is one who understands their own unworthiness. More specifically, in the Christian context, to be meek is to understand that we bring nothing to the table, that we've done nothing to deserve God's favor. Instead, because of our sin, we deserve His wrath. And knowing this to be true, we understand that we have no room to boast before God or before others. We're humble before God because He's holy and we're not. But we're also humble and meek before others because we recognize that every good gift we have, including wisdom, comes from above. And thus we recognize that if we're living in a way that's pleasing to God, it's not because of our great decision-making or because we're so smart. It's because God has been gracious to us and granted us the desire and ability to live for His glory and His kingdom. To live in wisdom, then, is to understand that we bring nothing to the table. If there's anything good in us, it comes from above. It's due to the grace of God. And thus, even our good conduct leaves us no room to boast before God or before others. A wise person won't, do just, or won't just do good things, although they will do good things, but they'll do good things with humility and meekness, understanding it's the grace of God that's giving them the ability to do so. So true and biblical wisdom is evidenced by good conduct and humble meekness. Worldly wisdom, on the other hand, is characterized by jealousy and selfish ambition. We see this in verse 14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So here's what I think James is saying in verse 14. He's saying, if you think you're wise, 
but you're motivated by jealousy and selfish ambition. He's saying, at least come clean and tell the truth. You're not living in wisdom. To boast that you are wise, but then to live for your own selfish purposes is to lie about the true nature of wisdom. True wisdom, again, as James pointed out in verse 13, is marked by good conduct and humble meekness, not by jealousy and selfish ambition. And in saying that, I think here's where we have to be honest about our culture. Most of what happens in the world today is indeed driven by jealousy and selfish ambition. Why do, polit- why do politicians do what they do? Most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time, they're driven by jealousy and selfish ambition. Why do families get into ugly legal disputes over contested wills and divided estates? Again, most of the time, it's because they're being driven by jealousy and selfish ambition. Why is it that the medical world is so complicated to navigate with insurance and pharmacies and hospitals? Again, most of the time, it's because the companies and corporations that we're dealing with in the medical world are driven by jealousy and selfish ambition. Why is it that we have a hard time finding media that we can trust? Again, I would argue it's the same reason, because instead of reporting the news, most reporters and news companies are trying to make a name for themselves. They're being driven by jealousy and selfish ambition. Why is it that most discussions on social media turn into toxic fires of of just all kinds of craziness rather than being constructive conversations that are building one another up? Again, it's because most people on social media are driven by jealousy and selfish ambition. And listen, I could keep going here, but I think you get the point. Most of what happens in the world today is not driven by meekness and humility. Instead, it's driven by jealousy and selfish ambition. And to be clear, this is a very serious issue. Because not only are jealousy and selfish ambition at odds with biblical wisdom, but jealousy and selfish ambition lead to a terrible place. Which brings us to the second point of contrast now, being this. Worldly wisdom leads to disorder in every vile practice, but true wisdom leads to peace and righteousness. Again, worldly wisdom leads to disorder in every vile practice, but true wisdom leads to peace and righteousness. We see this in verses 16 to 18. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I think most of us understand how cause and effect relationships work. If I leave the milk out overnight, that's the cause. It spoils, that's the effect. If I never brush my teeth, I get cavities and have bad breath. If I sprint up a hill, I run out of breath. If I cheer for Iowa State football, eventually I get disappointed. Cause, effect. Because I do this, this is the result. Now we see a couple of cause and effect relationships here in verses 16 to 18, starting with the negative cause and effect in verse 16. As verse 16 would tell us, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, that's the cause, then it's only a matter of time before disorder and every vile practice set in. That's the effect. Now in the context of James 3, it seems most likely, given the context surrounding this passage, that James is talking specifically about relationships in the church. When relationships in the church are driven by jealousy and selfish ambition, disorder in the church and vile practices will soon follow. But having said that, this cause and effect relationship of jealousy and selfish ambition leading to disorder in every vile practice is certainly not one confined to the church. If your marriage is characterized by jealousy or selfish ambition, chaos will follow. If your relationships at school are marked by jealousy, selfish ambition, those relationships will eventually implode. If your everyday actions are primarily motivated by jealousy and selfish ambition, it's only a matter of time before the bottom falls out and misery sets in. 
Now, let me be clear in saying this. There is nothing wrong with ambition in itself. The Apostle Paul was ambitious in trying to get the gospel to the nations. The problem is not ambition. The problem is being driven by selfish ambition. The problem is when you start to live for your own kingdom rather than the kingdom of God. Not too long ago, I listened to a podcast about a celebrity pastor in the United States. And having listened to that podcast, I think I would say that it seems to me that at the beginning, this pastor had good intentions to spread the good news of Christ. But over time, those godly ambitions morphed into selfish ambitions. Instead of advancing the kingdom, it became his goal to start advancing his own name and his own fame. Instead of living with true wisdom, in other words, this pastor started to conduct himself with the worldly wisdom. He became the main attraction. He became the star. Everything started to revolve around him. Not surprisingly, the result of this shift was disorder in every vile practice. The church eventually became a cesspool for chaos and sinful behavior. Now, amazingly, even in the midst of that darkness, God was still at work. But the truth of James 3.16 was on full display in this podcast. When you are driven by jealousy and selfish ambition, chaos and disorder are the result At times, listening to this podcast just made me sick to my stomach. Listen, whether inside the church or not, jealousy and selfish ambition, a desire to advance your own name, a desire to have what others don't have, this leads to disorder and every vile practice. Worldly wisdom leads to chaos and darkness, cause and effect. But thankfully, true biblical wisdom also has a cause and effect, and it's a positive one. Look again at verses 17 and 18. Verse 17 says this, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So James tells us here the true wisdom, which is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruit, impartiality, sincerity, that type of wisdom, James says, leads to peace and righteousness. And I would argue that this peace and righteousness is often tangible. You can feel it. When we went to the Mayo Clinic in January to try to get some help for my wife, we ended up being there much longer than we expected. And although many people, including many people in this, in this church, were extraordinarily generous to us in giving us money for hotels and food, eventually there came a point where we realized we can't keep staying at a hotel if we want to have any money in our bank account. And so I reached out to my brother who lives in Minnesota, and he has some contacts in Rochester where Mayo Clinic is. And through a friend of a friend, we got connected to a couple in Rochester, Larry and Diane. Larry's a pastor at a church in Rochester. And he and Diane feel like it's their ministry to open up their homes to people coming out of town to the Mayo Clinic. It's actually pretty extraordinary if you think about it because they are opening their home to complete strangers. There was even one occasion where they were gone in California to visit one of their kids and they let Tanya stay in the house by herself. Now, I know my wife doesn't give off the vibe of a squatter or a home invader, but it's still incredible they let someone they barely know have their house. All that to say they've been incredibly generous in their hospitality. Because Tanya has had to be at Mayo for multiple weeks this year, she spent a lot of time at their house. And the one word that I've, used, I've heard her use to describe her experience there over and over is the word peaceful. When she steps into that house, she feels peace. And I would argue the reason why she feels that is because of what we're talking about here in James 3. Larry and Diane demonstrate a wisdom that's from above. A wisdom that's pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, impartial, and sincere. And because of that, their house is a place of righteousness and peace. When you live for selfish ambitions, you harvest chaos. But when you set aside your own interests and you serve others out of love for Christ, you harvest peace and righteousness. 
Now, in saying that, let's be clear in saying this. James is not suggesting that if you live with true wisdom, your life will be easy. Keep in mind, already multiple times in this book to this point, James has pointed out how following Christ brings trials. So James is not saying here, if you do the right things, life will be easy and peaceful, and there'll be little butterflies of righteousness circling your head. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is this, that there will be, though, a peace and righteousness that will be present even in difficulty. And certainly there will be a harvest of righteousness and peace that will come when Christ returns. So this is the second point of contrast here. Worldly wisdom leads to disorder and every vile practice. True wisdom leads to peace and righteousness. Third point of contrast. Worldly wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. But true wisdom is a gift from God. Let me say that again. Worldly wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, but true wisdom is a gift from God. I think it's sometimes easy for us to downplay our selfish ambitions as if it's not really that big of a deal. After all, everyone's selfish at sometimes, and if we don't look out for ourselves, who will? But lest you think that way, I want you to listen again to the language of James in verse 15. All right, for the sake of context, let's go back to verse 14, but verse 15 is where I want us to focus. Verse 14 says this, but if you have bitter jealousy, and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. And here's the verse. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Now, I think we can all agree that there are certain words and adjectives that tend to get our attention more than others. For example, if Tanya makes a meal at home and she says, okay, what do you think? And I respond to her by saying, that's good. That's one response, right? But on the other hand, I respond by saying, it's fantastic. It's amazing. That's a completely different response. Or to use a similar example, but frame it negatively. If she asks what I think of the food, and I respond by saying, it's okay, probably not my favorite, but thank you for making it anyway. That's one thing. But if I respond by saying, this tastes like hot garbage, that is a different response. Now, for the record, lest you start gathering your pitchforks, I've never said that to my wife, and I never will. So you can withhold whatever hot garbage judgment you may have. My point is simply to say this. Certain language gets our attention. And it ratchets things up a bit. And without questions, James uses some of that type of language, the ratchet up the attention language here, to describe the origins of worldly wisdom. James says that the type of wisdom that is not from above and that operates out of jealousy and selfish ambition is earthly, which is not great, right? I think we would agree with that. It's unspiritual. That's not great either. But then he adds this. It is demonic. That kind of ups the ante, doesn't it? It gets your attention a little bit. If I walked up to you this morning and said, I think you're acting in an earthly way, that might get your attention. If I told you this morning, I think you're acting unspiritually, that might get your attention too. But if I walked up to you this morning and said, what you just did is demonic, in some cases, those would be fighting words, right? I mean, worldly wisdom here, as James described it, that's driven by jealousy and selfish ambition is earthly, and that it comes from the world and not the kingdom of God. It is unspiritual and that it's driven by our flesh and not by the Spirit, but it's also demonic and that it comes from Satan and not from God. So the next time you feel yourself being driven by selfish ambitions, don't pass those things off as if they're no big deal. Instead, remind yourself that your selfish ambition is a demonic tendency. Worldly wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And we need to be wise enough to be able to call it what it is. We need to have the courage to admit that when we're struggling with jealousy or selfish ambition, that's not a small deal, but rather it's something that's driven by Satan. True wisdom, on the other hand, though, is from above. It's a gift of God. 
Now, twice in this passage, James references the wisdom from above, wants to say what it's not, wants to say what it is. In verse 15, he opens by saying this, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. But then in verse 17, he clarifies, but the wisdom from above, so he clarifies what it is. I think this language of from above is really important and should bring to mind something that James said back in James chapter 1. Remember back in James chapter 1, James informed us that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And using that language of from above, again here in chapter 3, James is clearly telling us this true wisdom comes from God. It's a gift of God because every good gift is from above. This means a couple of things. One, we are dependent upon God to have this type of wisdom. And two, if we have this wisdom, it's from God and thus there's no room to boast. So this is the contrast that James is setting up here in James 3. Worldly wisdom is characterized by jealousy and selfish ambition. True wisdom is characterized by good conduct and humble meekness. Worldly wisdom leads to disorder in every vile practice. True wisdom leads to peace and righteousness. Worldly wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. True wisdom is a gift from God. And in pointing out that contrast, I think it should be obvious to us that James wants us to pursue true wisdom and to forsake worldly wisdom. And so to that end, in our last few minutes together this morning, I just want to give you two exhortations to put this passage into practice. All right, exhortation number one is simply this. Set aside your jealousy and your selfish ambition. Listen, if you've been trying to make a name for yourself or to build your own kingdom or to establish your own legacy or to live for your own selfish desires, let me plead with you this morning to set those desires aside and instead live for something bigger than yourself. Live for the kingdom of God. Prioritize his name. Dedicate yourself to his renown and his legacy. Live for his glory and his desires. For the first 19 years of my life, I lived for my own kingdom. I lived to advance my name and my renown. But here's the reality. I was living for something far too small. To adapt an analogy from C.S. Lewis, I was snorkeling in the plastic kiddie pool in our backyard when I could have instead been scuba diving at the Great Barrier Reef. But listen, some of you are still snorkeling in that kiddie pool. You're still living for your own selfish ambition. And frankly, all of us have a tendency to want to go back to that kiddie pool at times. So my encouragement for us this morning is simply set aside your selfish ambitions, your desire to make much of yourself. Instead, live for something much bigger than yourself. Live for the glory of Christ. And do so because of what Christ has done for you. Interestingly enough, there's another place in the New Testament that also talks about selfish ambition. And I think that passage helps us to understand what our motivation is to do what James is talking about here. So if you want, you can turn back to that Philippians chapter 3, or excuse me, 2. Is where I want to go here. If not, the words will be on the screen if you don't want to turn there. But you're just going back to the left a few books here. Philippians chapter 2. There's another passage, again, that's talking about selfish ambition. I think this one is important for us to understand why we would want to live in this way. All right, so Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8, says this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So there it is, selfish ambition. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he is in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The reason why we should be willing to set aside our own selfish ambitions is because this is exactly what Christ did for us. 
Jesus took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He endured the wrath of the Father that was set for us. He died so that we could live. He rose from the dead so that we might have life. And because this is the way that he lives, setting aside his interest on our behalf, this is how we are called to live too. To do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, or to add a word from James, jealousy. But instead, in humility, to count others more significant than ourselves. So listen, I don't know what areas of your life have become infused with selfish ambitions. For some of you, your whole life might be characterized by selfish ambition. For others, maybe it's just certain areas. But for all of us, it's probably something, at least at times. So whatever that area is, whatever it is, set aside your own agenda. Set aside your own kingdom. Set aside your own selfish ambitions and live for something that will last. Live for the kingdom of God. Live for others. Live to make Christ known. Stop snorkeling in the kiddie pool in your backyard and grab your scuba gear and head to the Great Barrier Reef. So that's one exhortation here. Set aside jealousy and selfish ambition. Here's the second. Exhortation number two. Seek the wisdom that's from above. I want to read one more time from verse 17 here in James chapter 3. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. I don't know about you, but that list is a little bit convicting for me. There are times where I feel like this list describes me, but other times not so much. Sometimes I lack gentleness or I'm not open to reason. I'm not as merciful as I should be. But while that is discouraging, I also think it's a helpful reminder that I need to seek the wisdom from above more fervently. If true wisdom from above is a gift of God, and if God gives generously to those who ask, which chapter 1 would say he does, then I need to boldly plead with God, God, please give me this wisdom. Help me to be pure in that my desires are not tainted by worldliness. Help me to be peaceable and that I'm slow to quarrel. Help me to be gentle even when I feel frustrated. Help me to be open to reason and humble knowing that I don't always see myself clearly. Help me to be full of mercy in light of the mercy you've shown me. Help me to bear good fruit because I'm abiding in you. Help me to be impartial, loving fellow image bearers. Help me to be sincere in my love for you and love for others. In short, Lord, please give me wisdom. And Lord, please give me the discipline to keep running to you in prayer and keep seeking to live in a way that's consistent with what your word teaches. Hear this clearly. If worldly wisdom leads to disorder in every vile practice, but true wisdom leads to peace and righteousness, then it seems to me that we should be fervent and disciplined in seeking this type of wisdom. When we lived in Amarillo, a Chick-fil-A restaurant opened just a few blocks from our church. And I don't know if they still do this, but when Chick-fil-A opens a new restaurant, at least back then, the first however many customers, customers, I think it was 100 or 200, would get a coupon for a free Chick-fil-A meal once a week for an entire year. So some of our students decided they were going to camp out outside of that Chick-fil-A overnight for a couple of nights because they were bound and determined they were going to get their free chicken for a year. And you know what? They were excited to do so. In fact, they were boasting to me about, oh, this is what we did. But here's my question. If that's how much trouble they were willing to go to for a free chicken sandwich, how much more fervent should we be in seeking the wisdom from above? After all, the wisdom from above leads to a harvest of peace and righteousness, which is far better than any chicken sandwich, even if it's a really good one. Listen, we should be fervent in pursuing the wisdom from above because the return is incredible. It's incredible. So listen, I know that sometimes we talk about wisdom as if it's as simple as determining how many licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll pop. 
But true wisdom is evidenced by good conduct and humble meekness. It leads to peace and righteousness, and it comes from God. That type of wisdom should be pursued fervently, humbly, and daily. So church, let's set aside our selfish ambitions. Instead, let's seek the wisdom from above, the wisdom that comes from God and the wisdom that brings glory to God. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we need this type of wisdom. The type of wisdom we've been talking about today, we recognize it comes from you. And so we just come before you humbly and admit our natural tendency is to be driven by jealousy and selfish ambition. But we know that tendency is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And so we pray that we would set that aside by the power of your Spirit working in us. Instead, that we would pursue you. And in pursuing you, that we would find true wisdom. Wisdom that leads to all the characteristics talked about in verse 17 and ultimately leads to a harvest of righteousness that has been sown in peace by those who make peace. So God, would you please be at work in us to help us seek the wisdom from above. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So one of the things that we talked about today is setting aside our own selfish ambition. And one of the reasons that we want to do that, as we saw in Philippians 2, is because this is how Christ lived for us. And so it's fitting in light of what we've just read here in James chapter 3 that we now come to the Lord's table together. Because at the Lord's table, we're reminded that Christ did set aside his interest. He took on human form and humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His body was broken, his blood was shed so that we could be reconciled to God. Despite our sin, if we turn to Jesus Christ in saving faith, we can be rescued from our sin and we can become a new creation. We can have peace with God and the hope of eternal life. But it's only if we trust in Jesus Christ. So this morning, I would say this, if you're not a believer and you're here today, first of all, glad you're here. Welcome. We would encourage you not to take the Lord's Supper, but we would encourage you to think about the offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you turn from your sin and trust in Christ, you can be saved. If you are a believer, however, we would invite you to participate with us and to celebrate the fact that Christ did set aside his own selfish interests and instead took on the form of a human, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. And because of that, we have hope. So practically speaking, how this is going to look is we're going to have a few minutes here to reflect through music. And then during that time, you can head to any one of the five stations located around the sanctuary. There's three up front here and two in the back. Um, during that time, you can go grab your items whenever you feel ready and then just bring them back to the seat because we'll take the items together here in just a few minutes. So let me pray and we'll get to it. Father, thank you for the opportunity to now partake in the Lord's Supper together and be reminded of what Christ has done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. and ever. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great week.